Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So there are, um, by one estimate anyway, and everything about AA, AA obviously is kind of hard to count, hard to estimate, hard to quantify, hard to test just because of the nature of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's that second word. But uh, the most accepted number, I think, is 2 million people worldwide are in AA programs. It's a lot of people. Um, we're going to talk about this today. We've been building to this for a while, talking about it among ourselves. Um, there are debates about how efficacious AA is, the 12-step form of treating alcoholism, whether it works or not. Um, AA says 50% of the people get uh, better right away, and then another 25% claw their way to sobriety. Um, Most of the people who try to study that come up with much lower numbers, a lot of times in the single digits. So we want to talk about sort of why AA has the kind of primacy that it has uh, in the world of of treating alcohol and, and for that matter, other addictions, Uh, why it has that kind of primacy, whether it should have that kind of primacy, whether there are other other things that are maybe even harder harder to see down the road or close to us, just over the shoulders uh, of AA, whether it's kind of blocking out that sun. So let me tell you who's going to be with us today. Uh, uh, Joining us in a little while, you'll meet uh, Mark Willenberg. He's an addiction psychiatrist and founder and CEO. Of Alter Clinic. He's the former director of treatment and recovery research at the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism at NIH. Um, and he is something of an AA downer. Gary Greenberg is here with us in studio. He's been with us for many other shows. He's a psychiatrist and the author of The Book of Woe, The DSM, and The Unmaking of Psychiatry. Uh, joining us by phone will be Jessica Gregg, medical director for substance use disorders uh, in the Oregon Health and Science University, and then uh, Brittany Delacreta, I hope I'm saying that right, yeah, Brittany Delacreta, journalist, social worker, and recovering alcoholic. That's sort of the lineup today. Uh, Gary Greenberg, I'm going to have you begin with us. Um, So, um, obviously, uh, AA is probably the most um, widely used treatment for um, alcoholism. How how did that come to be? Uh, How did AA get uh, its market position? Well, AA was in the right place at the right time. At the end of Prohibition, uh, when it was repealed, uh, the treatment and understanding of addiction, alcoholism, had gone into suspended animation. And repeal sort of, it's like taking something out of amber. And -hmm. suddenly, alcoholism was on people's minds again. White white middle-class people were getting addicted to alcohol, and uh, the the treatment, um, there was nothing. Uh, in In a way, when Prohibition came in, uh, medicine was still in the 19th century, and when it came, when it was repealed, it was a whole new thing. And doctors were trying to figure out how do we get control of the treatment, and how do we get the money to research it, and how do we get the people, uh, as opposed to uh, the temperance movement, which was still around, and the priests and the ministers and the public scolds. And uh, they hit upon a strategy with the help of a marketing genius by the name of Dwight Anderson that if you could convince the public that alcoholism and addiction in general were was a disease, then they would automatically consult with doctors to um, take care of it. And that, in turn, would trigger money 
and so on. So that's w- one of the things that happened. And then the next thing that happened was if uh, alcoholism is a disease, what's the treatment? And so at right around the same time that the disease model was being uh, advanced, um, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, was struggling to get off the ground. Alcoholics Anonymous had some potential to catch on largely because of its religious roots. It spoke to the American piety and the American penchant for rebirth. And it also fit in well with the abstinence ideology because it, uh, it essentially ordered abstinence. And so these two streams crossed, as it happens, at Yale in the early 1940s where a doctor by the name of Elwin Jelinek and a um, recovering alcoholic by the name of Marty Mann uh, met and realized that they each had something to offer the other. The doctor had the disease to offer uh, for the cure, and the Marty Mann, who was an AA advocate, uh, had the, uh, had the, uh, the treatment uh, to offer for the disease. And, so, uh, and Yale, of course, uh, had the prestige to offer to all of them. And while I'm vastly oversimplifying, that really allowed AA to take root in a very deep way uh, as the treatment of choice for uh, for addiction throughout the next uh, sixty or seventy years until today, really. Um, Jessica, Greg, um, is it fair to say that? I mean, looking looking at it from the outside, it seems that the other the other thing that happened was it, it doesn't seem as though the lattice work of medical tre- treatment, treatment treatment driven by medical science, really got built very well. Or if it did get built very well, it didn't get delivered very well to the average person. The average person right now, with a family member going through the, just the th- worst possible throes of alcoholism, if it's your brother, your brother's kid, whatever it is, you know, the, the advice most of us would have probably would be, well, your insurance isn't going to cover a lot of stuff, and. Uh, Boy, maybe you should try twelve step. It doesn't doesn't cost anything, and people say it's great. Jessica, why is that? I mean, why isn't there some kind of comparable delivery system to like pneumonia? Well, I mean, that's a great question. You know, a couple of reasons. Um, addiction addiction sort of comes along with a lot of social chaos, so. I think that primary care providers who generally have 15 minutes to 20 minutes to see a patient tend to not want to deal with addiction because it's not a 15 to 20 minute problem. So there's the addiction and then there's the family disorder, there's the legal issues, there's the et cetera and et cetera. So it's it's a very, very hard condition to deal with within the medical framework. And then also we haven't actually had particularly good medications for a long time until recently to to deal with addiction. So doctors were faced with a problem that was incredibly difficult and very few tools to address that problem. And that has changed recently, um, but, but really pretty recently within the last few decades. Yeah, so maybe one of the differences is you know, I mean, if I go from clinic to clinic to from to urgent care facility in uh, Madison, Connecticut, uh, or an urgent care facility in Madison, Wisconsin, and I've got pneumonia, they're going to basically tell me the same thing. I mean, there might be a little bit of variance, but there's sort of an understood way to treat pneumonia. Um, I guess one thing you're saying is, I- until recently, and maybe not even recently, there isn't. I mean, there, there isn't the equivalent that you couldn't walk into uh, whatever the equivalent an emergency room in in Madison, Wisconsin or Madison, Connecticut, and get the same answers about alcoholism. 
Yeah, and the other thing is that pneumonia is an acute condition. It's you walk in, you get the medication, you get the antibiotic, and then you know generally it resolves. Mm-hmm. Addiction is a chronic. Uh, so I agree with with the National Institute of Drug Abuse that that addiction is a chronic disease and. Medicine is only marginally well-equipped to deal with most chronic diseases because most chronic diseases are the result of the interaction of biology, behavior, and environment. And medicine's good at biology. So there are medications that now exist to treat addiction, particularly opioid addiction, and those are really important advances, and they should be used much more widely. But that still leaves the need for effective interventions to address behavior and social environment, and we're not good at that in medicine. Um, Gary, uh, is the chronic disease model the way that you think uh, medicine should think about this or, or therapy or society should think about this? There's advantages to the chronic disease model for sure, um, especially. But what we have to remember is that a lot of people who are at one time in their lives addicted stop being addicted. And um, there are you know bodies of research about this. But for the people who, have, who don't just stop being addicted, I, I think the chronic disease model can work as long as we accept it as a metaphor. It's not really, we still don't really have what we like to have to call something a disease because what we like to have, your, your example, the pneumonia, um, despite the fact that alcoholism or addiction were declared diseases in, 19, in the early 1940s, we still don't really have a sense of a mechanism in the way we like to to call something a disease. On the other hand, a chronic illness model uh, does help people. It gives them uh, an identity. It gives them a name. It gives them access to research, to treatment. So in that respect, I think the chronic disease model works for the people for whom it is appropriate. Um, Brittany Dillacreta, let's talk a little bit more about 12 Steps uh, and about um, Alcoholics Anonymous. I guess one thing we should say right off is that um, when we talk about um, trying, to, trying to measure its success rate, um, one of the fundamental unfairnesses is, is that uh, a number of the people who are measured or who are part of the sample are people who've been ordered to go to AA, who, who maybe haven't committed to it. Maybe their hearts and souls uh, are not in this, right? Because it's a court-ordered treatment. Uh, so, Brittany, are you there? Uh, we might have to go. We might have to circle back, see if we can find Brittany. Uh, well, actually, I'll go back to you, G- Gary. So one of the things that makes this complicated, we know that having it be a court-ordered treatment is complicated on two levels. One of them is there's a religious component to it. There now, there's now a whole lot of case law coming up about whether the courts can order somebody to go to something that has a religious or spiritual component. The courts seem to be saying, no, don't do that. Um, but then there's that whole question of efficacy. Should a court tell you to do something that's essentially a therapy without knowing how well the therapy works. Well, yes. I mean, no, it shouldn't do that. But um, the anecdotal evidence is so strong that essentially AA has become a form of folk medicine. Mm. And so it's not a crazy thing for a court to mandate it. And I would say that the compulsory nature of the 12-step group is not limited to the courts, which obviously have the most leverage. It's also found informally. Um, it's found in families. Look, you can't live here unless you're going to meetings. Um, or it's found in institutions like corporations. You can't work here unless you go to meetings. So the, the question that you're raising there is whether or not AA deserves that kind of, um, that kind of authority. And the answer is that 
there are many cases in which it lives up to its reputation, but by far all of them, and as you pointed out earlier, um, it is not very well researched. It's almost impossible to design a study to answer the question. So I think we do have uh, Brittany Delacreta back. Hi, Brittany. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, no, now I can hear you. Okay. Hi, Brittany. So um, one of the things that we're sort of alluding to or, or circling around here is that whole question of measuring the efficacy of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and as uh, you very well know, one of the more controversial things written about it in the last couple of years was written by Gabrielle Glazer uh, in, in The Atlantic talking about um, AA as almost, I think she used the word even in the title, that it was uh, an irrational form of treatment. Uh, she cited studies that put the success rate somewhere in the single digits uh, as opposed to 50 to 75 percent. So um, make the opposing case. Explain what you think the place of AA is and, and how effective you think it can be. Well, I think like we've discussed, AA is very hard to operationalize when we're trying to study it. So when we're looking at success rates of the program, what are we counting as participating in the program or working the program? Because the program by design is a 12-step program. None of those steps include going to meeting. So are we counting people who maybe are court-ordered? And if they are court-ordered, they actually don't meet the only requirement for AA membership, which is a desire to stop drinking. So do they count as having tried AA and have it not work? Is it people who attend one meeting a week? Is it people who go to these meetings, get a sponsor, and work the 12 steps as they are in the literature? So this is a really hard thing to operationalize and to measure the effects of. So I think when we talk about whether or not it's successful, there's such varying degrees to which someone can get involved in AA and what is more successful. And, and Jessica, back to your point, I mean, it seems to me there's sort of a, um, an issue of scale of the problem. As you pointed out, medicine exists, particularly with some, a chronic condition like this, that has a lot of moving parts. You know, it, it has a biological dimension, a, me, a scientific dimension, but it has a societal dimension, too. People don't lose their jobs usually because they have pneumonia. They can lose their jobs because they're alcoholics. It has a family dimension. It has a family history dimension. It has all these things going on that are very difficult, as you said, to address even in a 25-minute doctor's visit, and that's a long time to be at the doctor. Um, and, and in a way, I mean, I guess it could be argued that AA evolved as this incredibly low-cost, uh, crowdsourced way of addressing a problem that was so, diff so unscalable at the level uh, of our medical delivery system. Yeah, and I, the 12 steps is one tool that helps people deal with behaviors, environment, and it's a tool that tens of thousands of people have found to be incredibly helpful. And that doesn't mean it works for everyone, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't have problems. I just think it means that we should be very careful about being dismissive of it when we do know that for tens of thousands of people, it's really in the core of their recovery. Um, and, and I would assume, uh, Brittany, that, you know, absent the people who are ordered to go to it by courts, you, th there's a way of sustaining motivation within the context of 12-step programs, right? I mean, if you're going regularly, if you're having those conversations, if you're working those steps, you're effectively committing yourself uh, with, a, with a lot of support uh, in a way that 
that I don't have to do that. If I go to my doctor to be treated for pneumonia or I've got a pinched nerve or something, I, you know, I don't have to make that commitment. Presumably my doctor will make me better. And our understanding of alcoholism is it just doesn't work that way. Sure. It's low buy-in. You can show up and you can mess up and you can have the group say, that's okay, keep coming back. And the program itself doesn't even necessarily think that it is the only solution. It's kind of the medical community that for a long time had pushed it. But if you actually read the AA literature, the big book, which is what the original program is based on, it actually suggests trying everything else first to try to control your drinking uh, before coming to AA. They actually tout themselves as the thing that works when nothing else has. I think also looking at AA as kind of in opposition to therapy or medication is also not necessarily accurate either because there are plenty of people who go to AA and that is one tool in their toolbox, but they are also seeking therapy as well and looking at other ways to manage their alcoholism. You know, Gary, knowing a little bit about your philosophy of life, uh, but not everything about your philosophy of life, I'm wondering, uh, I would expect AA in some ways to look very good to you. As my insight as I was preparing for the show today, if it can turn out to be called an insight, is that it's like Wikipedia, right? It's hierarchically very flat. It's crowdsourced. The bar to entry, the barrier to entry is very low. Um, It's, in fact, this this system that people as opposed to authorities, have put together, um, uh, and, and it's, it's measured by the people who use it. Uh, and, you know, at, at that, and obviously we wouldn't want Wikipedia to be the only reference tool we ever had access to, but what Wikipedia has become is pretty interesting, you know, and it also manages to kind of uh, harness the skills of people who haven't been through traditional academic pipelines for certification and stuff like that. Now, Wikipedia has some downsides, too. You wouldn't want to build a bridge based on the instructions that you found on Wikipedia. But it's this is, to me, when I look at AA, I'm not suggesting that it's utopian, but it's a pretty interesting response, anyway, to an incredibly complicated problem. Yeah, so it's it's appealing in, in the ways that you describe in the sense that it's non-hierarchical. Uh, you know, whatever my philosophy of life is now, there was a time when I would have loved to do some kind of a takedown of AA, and uh, but there's nothing really to take down. There's no real institution there. There's no power being wielded by, you know, men behind curtains and stuff like that. Um, but just because it's anarchic in that respect doesn't mean that it isn't authoritarian in some respects, maybe in ways that Bill Wilson didn't intend, maybe in ways that can't be found in the big book, but for reasons like the judicial involvement or like the medical industry's adoption of AA, it has become a kind of authority, and there are specific results of that. For instance, we continue to struggle in this country with this idea of abstinence as something that is achievable and a good thing. So, and that is so woven into the AA ideology. The AA does have an ideology. It's not like Wikipedia in the sense that it's modifiable. Um, it may be loosely held, and it may be, yeah, you can come to the meetings even if you don't buy the whole thing. But that ideology has been handed through, has diffused through the culture. And one of the ways in which it has is that it gives support to this idea that drugs are binary. 
you either use them or you don't. And one of the problems we face in this country, especially with the opiate uh, addiction epidemic, is that people don't know how to use drugs. People aren't educated that this is something that you can do safely. Uh, This is something that may be part of most people's lives. And so I think that's one of the ways in which AA, despite it's not really having any uh, claim on or pretensions to power, still functions in an authoritative way in the society. Um, Brittany, I'd, I'd love to hear you respond to that. Well, I think there's a lot of really good points that are made, and I think that not all of them are necessarily the fault of the program itself, but more of society and the medical community and even the legal community in the way that AA has been held up. And I wonder if some of that doesn't have to do with the fact that we just haven't had a lot of other options for a very long time. And so while AA is something that works for some people and abstinence is something that works for some people, it doesn't necessarily work for everyone. But because we've had such a poor understanding of alcoholism and addiction and so few options for treating it, it's kind of become this catch-all and has been put on a pedestal that maybe it was never intended to be and doesn't belong on. You know, uh, Jessica, there's one part of this that we haven't really talked uh, about that much, and that is the second word, anonymous. One difference between AA and a lot of other therapies that I could seek would be, in fact, that my, my identity would presumably be shielded pretty well, as opposed to being entered into some kind of database um, that may affect e- even here in the era of the ACA, my insurance rates, uh, and certainly uh, go to God knows what other entities. Um, so so what about that? This is uh, This is another way in which... Um, alcoholism and and dependency are different from pneumonia. Pneumonia isn't stigmatized the way alcoholism is. Um, So there's an incentive, right, for for me to have nobody, uh, particularly nobody uh, wielding a database, know that that, that I do this. I think that's right. I mean, there are other layers of protection if you're in addiction treatment, uh, legal layers with this law called 42 CFR that is sort of an extra barrier for people to find out um, if you're being treated for um, alcohol or or drug abuse. That said, um, if I'm prescribing someone a medication called buprenorphine, it's pretty easy to find that out. And that is a medication that's used for opioid addiction primarily. So yeah, so having an anonymous treatment that really has no way of being tracked, unless it's mandated and you have to bring in signatures or something, is incredibly appealing. If I could just add to that, sure. Colin, um, one of the impulses for anonymity in the early days, and I think it, it carries through, wasn't so much to protect people from stigma as it was to encourage confession. AA mm-hmm. comes out of the Oxford group, and the Oxford group was a religious movement that believed that salvation was really earned through confession in groups, uh, one person to another. And that, in their view, required the anonymity that would create equality so that I don't know if you're, you know, the host of a radio show or a janitor, and I don't even know your last name, so I don't maybe know your wife, but I wouldn't know that. And I think that, I think that that's the real, uh, the ger- certainly the germ of the anonymity. It's not to uh, create stigma or privacy even. It's to facilitate uh, mutual confession. And mutual confession, again, is one of the real appealing aspects of 12 steps because the people are becoming intimate with each other and shedding themselves of uh, secrets. 
Um, Brittany Delacrete, I, I, I wanted to ask you one more question about this, too, uh, which is that, you know, there's I, I think one of the things that we're hearing here and that we hear a lot is that notion that this is um, essentially a religious movement, uh, either five or seven of the steps mentioned on God or a higher power, depending, I guess, on which ones you count and stuff like that. On the other hand, my experience in knowing a whole bunch of people, having a whole bunch of friends who are in AA, some of the least religious people I know are in AA. There are um, agnostic AA chapters that you can easily locate if you're in a major urban center. I mean, how how much do you buy the argument that AA is to some degree a religion masquerading as a therapy? So it definitely came out of the Oxford group, which was a religious movement. And so the roots were religious, but it has evolved into something. I know atheists who are in AA and successfully work the 12 steps and this concept of higher power or God is really malleable and really open to personal interpretation, which can be really appealing to people who don't like the spiritual aspect. And upon closer examination, some of the steps that may seem a little woo, I guess is the word I would use, are less so, say, for step four, which is the moral inventory that we're talking about as a confession, what it actually also entails is changing the way you think about the beliefs and the things that you've done and the way that you view the world, similar to, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which works on challenging negative beliefs. And the same in the 11th step, which talks about spirituality, but also incorporates things like mindfulness, which is another common therapeutic technique. So again, when we look at the 12 steps in opposition to therapy, it's not always that simple. All right, we're going to have to grab a great uh, break here. We want to thank, uh, first of all, uh, Brittany De La Creta, uh, who is a journalist and social worker and a recovering alcoholic, and Jessica Craig, medical director for substance use disorders at Oregon Health and Science University. Coming back, we'll have more of psychotherapist Gary Greenberg, uh, and we will add uh, Mark Willenberg, addiction psychiatrist and founder and CEO of Altair Clinic. All right. Welcome back. Uh, still with us, uh, Gary Greenberg, psychotherapist and author of the book of Woe, the DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. Uh, also with us by phone, Mark Willenberg, addiction psychiatrist and founder and CEO of uh, Altair Clinic. He is the former director of treatment and recovery research for the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism at NIH. So, um, Mark Willenberg, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. Good to be here. So imagine that I am uh, an untreated um, alcoholic. Uh, my life is short. I don't want to mess around with things that are not going to work. I want to get better as fast as I can and, and enjoy the people that I love and, and the work that I do. Um, what would you tell me to do? Come to Altier Clinic. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> what would I get there? Well, you know, we're a clinic. We're not a program. Yeah. Um, so what you get here would be like what you would get going to any uh, medical specialist or to a mental health clinic. Um, you'd get a professional, a comprehensive professional evaluation, and then you'd get access to every evidence-based uh, behavioral and medication treatment for both any substance use disorders and any mental health disorders at the same time and for as long as you need it. 
Um, sounds good, but sounds complicated, maybe expensive, maybe my insurance doesn't cover it, maybe I don't want my uh, name entered into the database, as we were saying before. Uh, there's an AA uh, chapter that meets uh, a couple of blocks away from where I live. Why wouldn't I be better off just doing that? Well, if it works for you, that's fine. <clears throat> AA, though, is not a treatment. AA is a voluntary association of people with a disorder who are helping each other and supporting each other to uh, uh, get into and stay in recovery. So it's not treatment any more than a breast cancer support group uh, treat is treatment for breast cancer. Uh, the, and I think this is commonly misunderstood because 80 to 85% of the rehabs in the country base their rehab approach on the 12 steps of AA. But rehab is very different from Alcoholics Anonymous as an organization. Rehabs are professional organizations. They're licensed by the state. The, the providers are licensed, and they're supposed to be professionals. Um, they're supposed to be providing professional up-to-date treatment. However, virtually none of them offer anything but what was available in 1955, which is AA. <clears throat> Now, I have nothing against AA. <clears throat> There's a relatively small minority of people with alcohol use disorder who affiliate with AA. And people ask me if AA works. My answer is always, well, it works for the people it works for. And it's very the, the strongest predictor of affiliation with AA is how severe the addiction is. So AA is filled mainly with people at the very most severe end of the spectrum of severity. The vast majority of people in the country, or worldwide, who develop an alcohol use disorder do not have that severe form and remain much more functional. They're out in the community and they have had no place to go for treatment because it's all been focused on about the sickest five to 10%. So, the, the, so, so that's really been the problem. People don't have access to up-to-date, scientifically-based professional treatment, and they should have access to it. So you're talking about a spectrum. Um, Gary pretty much talked about the same thing, that our understanding uh, of, uh, of alcohol addiction has been, for the most part, or any kind of drug addiction, has been pretty binary or, or dichotomous. You, either you, Very much. You, you have that problem. So maybe describe the spectrum to me. If, if there's a spectrum, um, how, how do we understand that? How do we understand, you know, I have a couple of glasses of wine most nights. Um, how do we understand where we are on the spectrum and, and where, uh, whether or not we need to do something about it? Okay, well, the way we diagnose an alcohol use disorder or any substance use disorder is spelled out very clearly in this publication called the uh, DSM-5, or the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders published by the American Psychiatric Association. And there are 11 criteria, and they're easily available to, if you do a, a web search, for example. It's very easy to find them. Now, <clears throat> they're divided into three parts. Most of them, at least about half, only focus on the experience of compulsive use. So setting limits and going over them, a persistent desire to quit or cut down and finding that hard to do, spending more time on it than you'd like, um, maybe continuing to use in spite, to drink in spite of hangovers or feeling foggy the, the next day, craving. So those are the common symptoms. 
And most people who develop an alcohol use disorder only have these internal symptoms. So they're, they go to work on time. Nobody at work has a clue. They, take, they pick up their kids after school. Nobody at school has a clue. Their kids probably don't have a clue. Uh, they fix dinner for the kids, help them with their homework, put them to bed, and then they go off and drink their two bottles of wine or their pint of whiskey, and it's sequestered at night. So that's the, that, that's, that profile fits about 80% of people who develop an alcohol use disorder. So I, I, the, want, I want to ask yeah, you, and, you... Go ahead, yeah. And, most, let me, and one more thing to say sure. about that mm-hmm. is that about 80% of people who develop a disorder have a single episode in their lifetime lasting on average a few years, and then it goes away and never comes back. So most people have a relatively mild to moderate form that's usually self-limited. So only about 20% have recurrent episodes or the chronic form. And rehab, only, only about 10% of people who develop a disorder ever access any kind of specialty treatment right now because it's so oriented towards the very, very severe. So this, I have so many questions now. Um, so particularly because my father was kind of the guy that you're describing, you know. I mean, uh, didn't lose jobs or anything like that and wasn't detectable and kind of waited for everybody to go to bed. And then at a certain point, he died of cirrhosis, and, and the whole thing just sort of became much more clear to me. So, um, right. there, there's so there are so many ways in which I, I want to talk to both you and Gary about that. But I guess the first question is, when I think of somebody like that, um, I, 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 I first of all wonder, can they be cured? And second of all, what does the cure look like? Does it mean that um, now he can have a martini at dinner, uh, but it's n- somehow or they're not going to morph into that other more clandestine and, and you know, pretty ferocious behavior? You know, the, the question about, well, first of all, not every heavy drinker has, a, has a, uh, an alcohol use disorder. Sometimes it's simply that people are using at a medically unhealthy rate, and it's, it's not, it doesn't become compulsive. It's just that they don't know better. Uh, and so, you know, that's why France, for example, has a high level of high rate of cirrhosis. People will drink wine all day. They'll never be intoxicated, but they, they may end up with liver disease. Uh, secondly, the what um, if someone has mild alcohol use disorder, uh, there is it's a reasonable goal to think eventually of being a controlled drinker. So if you look 20 years after onset of alcohol dependence, which is actually more severe even than what I'm talking about here, uh, but if you look at at uh, because it was a different diagnostic uh, system. But if you, if you look 20 years later, the most common outcome is low-risk drinking without any problems. That's about 40%. About a third are in abstinent. We call that non-abstinent recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, the second most common is about a third are in abstinent recovery. Uh, about a quarter are much better, but they still have periods of pathological drinking. And uh, fewer than 10% are still actively dependent. So the long-term prognosis 
for most people is really very good. And Gary, that sounds similar to kind of what I think you were saying earlier, that you view this as a chronic illness that people learn to live with in different ways, uh, as opposed to, once again, there's sort of the binary model, and then there's sort of the, there's the AA model, too, which basically says this is a condition over which you are powerless. Uh, so either you, know, either you take these steps uh, or you drink, in which case you are going to be in an atmosphere of powerlessness, uh, and which presumably you will not be able to affect what happens to you. Yeah, and, and I said, as I say, chronic illness as a metaphor, and I'm not even sure it's the best way to understand drinking. Um, what Mark's talking about here is people taking control of their use of the alcohol or the drug. And I, I need to point out that the, the, the story you tell about your father, whatever its implications for you and him, it, it would be impossible if his drug of choice wasn't alcohol. Any other drug that he used that way would have got him in, got most likely gotten him into other kinds of trouble. So you can see right there that it's not monolithic. But to the question of whether or not that's a good way to look at it, I think it is. But I think you also have to add the question, why do you want to use this drug in the first place? What are you trying to achieve with it? And is it doing for you what you want it to do? We don't often think about it that way, but that's another way to measure whether or not your drinking or your drug use is a problem, is what's the original intent and how close or far are you from it? So, Mark, one of the things that we now know, I mean, the science around this is, is changing fast, and, and at least it's fast to my eyes. Maybe it's much more incremental if you're really immersed in it all. One of the things that uh, I've come across is even the notion that um, – that not only is it not binary or dichotomous, but there may be ways in which continuing to drink somewhat is compatible and even desirable with certain kinds of treatment. I read about something called the Sinclair method. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Well, <clears throat> David Sinclair uh, interpreted existing studies of a drug called naltrexone, which is uh, used as an anti-relapse medication. It's probably the it is the most studied one uh, and probably the most commonly prescribed at this point. And uh, he, um, in my view, misinterpreted these studies, which were not actually set up to test his idea. And his idea is this, is, pardon me, is that naltrexone uh, blocks opioid receptors in the brain, and that's our pleasure system. So when it does that, with alcohol, it functions as kind of a buzzkill. So you, when you drink, you just don't get the same warm, uplifting, nice feeling. You can still get just as drunk, but, you don't, but it's not any fun. So it kind of takes the joy out of it. So it's like the reverse pa Pavlov uh, effect. Uh, in, in other words, you're, you're decoupling. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. So, so his idea is, well, if you take naltrexone and keep drinking, you keep taking naltrexone and you drink, that eventually he's seeing this as a learning, uh, learned habit that can be unlearned and deconditioned. In other words, so that the conditioning is extinguished by the lack of reinforcement because you're not getting that buzz when you drink. Now, that has never actually been tested formally. Mm -hmm. uh, and, again, the studies that he bases that on were not set up to test that. What he ignores, I think, in that is the neurobiology. And so the way it works is 
you can measure the severity of addiction pretty much by how many of the DSM-5 criteria are positive, going from 2 to 11. And when you get more than about moderate to moderately severe, what's clear is that impaired control over use, once it starts, that's kind of the sine qua non. I call it the water slide. So you, you know, before you get into a water slide, you may intend on stopping 15 feet in, but you're not going to. Mm-hmm. And so for someone who develops compulsive drinking, that's what happens is that uh, they may intend to only have two drinks, but essentially they change their mind after the first one or two and then keep going. So they have impaired control. Once it, that it, it, once the disorder reaches a certain level of severity and length, that process is irreversible. Mm-hmm. Those mechanisms in the brain that regulate intake of alcohol are permanently broken. So that means someone can abstain for 20 years, and if they try to drink, they will lose control. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, Sinclair ignored, ignores that. And so, um, and, and those of us who have played with that and tried it, uh, many of my colleagues have the same experience. It doesn't work. And in fact, the, the strongest predictor of success using this drug naltrexone is a goal of abstinence. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, so I don't think it's, I don't think it works. It's, uh, there's no good evidence for it. And um, in some ways, it's a bit dangerous. All right, we're going to go, grab a quick. Hopes. We'll grab a, a quick break here. Uh, we want to talk about uh, what does work when we come back. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Michael Keaton. For show pages, articles, and video, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, The Nose investigates Kraft macaroni and cheese. Now, back to Colin. Could be another uh, addiction, although they changed the formula. They sold 50 million boxes without telling anybody. Uh, Joining us right now is uh, Gary Greenberg, psychotherapist and author of The Book of Woe, The DSM, and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. Mark Willenberg, addiction psychiatrist and founder and CEO of Altair Altair Clinic. Uh, He's the uh, former director of treatment and recovery research at the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism at NIH. So we were uh, talking before uh, about that notion that people who have, who who kind of, drink in a way that gets them into a cascade where in the midst of their drinking, they begin revising their own plans, expectations, and relationship to the thing that they're drinking, uh, that that becomes a kind of damaged mechanism that really can't be set right. So, Gary, that led you to a question you wanted to ask Mark Willenberg. Go ahead and ask it. So I, I was just hoping you could clarify how how these two things that you've said square, the one being that so many people who had uh, drinking problems uh, ended up as control drinkers, and the other being that there's an irreversible change in the brain's way of handling alcohol or another drug. Sure. What I, the, what I said was that uh, when, <clears throat> when the addiction reaches a certain point of severity and length, it becomes irreversible. At early stages, it appears to be reversible. Mm-hmm. And, and so those people that uh, recover by becoming control drinkers are those who never reached that stage. 
That's correct. And so, so I think that, having, ha- go ahead. Having said that, having said that, if you look at the the intervening years, five, ten, and fifteen, many of them <clears throat> started out by abstaining for several years, and then eventually started drinking. And the way they keep it under control is they don't they drink not very much, not very often. So, so one of the things that that gets at uh, is this next question that you know you were getting at, Colin, which is the one about so what works, and one of the, one of the implications of that finding is that what might work is not just early intervention but education. Right now, uh, in part because of the dominance of AA, we have this binary idea. But I think what you're saying there, Mark, is that if people didn't get to that point, um, then they would probably be able to use their drug of choice, whatever it is, throughout their lives without getting into trouble. Or to put it another way, they wouldn't get to the point where they could no longer use the drug that they like so much. I'm not so sure that the people at the severe end of the spectrum and the people at the mild end of the spectrum have the same disorder Hmm. or the same form of the disorder. You know, the thing about diagnoses in healthcare in general as well as in psychiatry, is that they're, they're categories of convenience. And within them, there's considerable variability. So someone can have, we, we, we can say someone has major depression or bipolar disorder or diabetes. Uh, someone with diabetes could have, could have a very progressive, rapidly progressive course, uh, develop renal failure and blindness and amputations and uh, die at 45. And then another person will have a very mild course uh, that's well-controlled, easily controlled, and they'll live until they're 80. Now, it's kind of the same thing here. Uh, the I think there's there are differences in the genetics. Uh, I mean, alcohol use disorder is about 60% genetic, uh, about the same as asthma. And there are differences in the genetics uh, because we're talking about very complex genetics, hundreds of genes. And uh, so it's very complicated that way. So what's interesting to me is that the people I see who are coming in who are highly functional by and large, but are distressed by their lack of control over drinking, uh, often seem to have a built-in governor. So the the amount they're drinking is maybe five to eight drinks a day, maybe 10. Uh, You know, a bottle of wine is five drinks. And so a lot of the women I see uh, with mild alcohol use disorder uh, are drinking a bottle or a bottle and a half of wine a day. Now, the people in AA and in rehab are most often drinking 24 to 40 drinks in a drinking day. So a liter of vodka is 24 drinks. And that's a very, very common uh, amount for someone at the severe end uh, to drink. But the people at the mild end really never get there. They don't want to get there. They get there, they're satiated at five to eight. And so they they don't so this idea that it's inevitably progressive really comes out of AA. There's it's one of what I call the myths of rehab. For the people in AA yes, they had very severe, very progressive, early onset, usually multifamilial or multi generational family history. And for them, the reason AA stresses abstinence as such an absolute is that for those people, the leader a day folks, uh, it is absolute. Mm -hmm. They have absolutely no control once they start drinking. 
So it's literally true for most AA members that a single drink could immediately lead to death because mm. they just completely lose control. And are, you know, are drinking a liter or a 1.75 liter bottle of vodka a, a day within three or four days. That's the, that's the severity uh, of that group. And so for them, even thinking about controlled drinking is extremely risky for them. They can't afford to even consider that. However, at the mild end of the spectrum, it's a different story. And I would say, frankly, about 50% of the people at the mild end of the spectrum will be able to succeed at a controlled drinking goal, goal right away. And again, many have to be abstinent for a year or two uh, and then are able to uh, return to some controlled drinking. Um, but I don't really don't think they have you know the same disorder. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not the same severity. Um, um, Mark Willenbring, yeah. we're, we're effectively out of time. I'm about to ask you a 40-minute uh, answer question that I sort of need a yes or no to. But, you know, I mean, uh, given everything that you said, how likely is it for most people that they can get the kind of treatment that you offer, that it's covered by their insurance, that it's available anywhere near where they live, uh, and, and that, that somebody would know to send them to get the kind of um, treatment that, that you're talking about? We've only got like about 10 seconds for you to answer okay. that. Okay. There's no really nobody else in the country offers what Altier does. And I founded Altier to change the system so people have an option. And we want to spread this notion so people deserve to have uh, 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 access to scientifically based professional treatment that uses uh, evidence-based medications and uh, psychotherapy techniques to maximize their chances of success. All right. So it sounds like, no, probably right now most of us can't get that, but it sounds really good anyway. Uh, all right. We'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to Gary. Thanks to all our other guests. Special thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing.